Hey everyone, welcome to the sermon podcast from Mount Hope Belmont's location, where each week you'll hear a message designed to help you learn more about God, grow in your love for God and others, so you can go and live a life driven by faith. This series, we will be talking about how God prepares His people. Many times we get so focused on the big, incredible moments in life that we tend to overlook the little moments that shaped those incredible ones. Jeff Mannion says that a remarkable life is built by taking a thousand unremarkable steps. The same can be said when reflecting on our faith and spiritual life. God often works through the day-to-day to prepare His people for the remarkable things in life. Join us for the next few weeks as we look at Scripture and see how God truly prepares His people. We're starting a new sermon series this morning. And we are going, we've been walking through the book of Proverbs, we're going to move out of that conversation, and we're going to start a brand new series uh, this week that I'm really looking forward to. And even though the screen right now says Life at the Crossroads, the book of Proverbs, that is my fault. Uh, That is not where we are at this morning. That's 100% my fault. Uh, But we are moving into a new series, a new series that we are calling How God Prepares His People. How God Prepares His People. And we're going to, to look at, we're going to look at some of the major characters in the Bible. Not all of them, but we have five weeks here. And so each week, we're going to look at different people in the Bible. We're going to take a look at how God prepared them for the big moments. You know, sometimes in life, we look at people who accomplish great things. We look at the team that wins the championship. We look at the person who wins the big prize, the Nobel Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, the person that wins the giant award or makes a great deal of money. And we celebrate the big achievement, don't we? We celebrate what is happening in that moment. But what we can often miss, what we can often miss are all the unremarkable, behind-the-scenes moments that had to happen if that big moment was going to take place. Everyone cheers the person that wins the trophy, but what we miss is we miss all of the hundreds and thousands of hours with no one cheering, in darkened rooms, by themselves, practicing. And we think that God, if you touch it to look at the lives of people in Scripture, that God often works the exact same way, that we celebrate the big moments. David takes down Goliath. Daniel survives the lion's den. Paul plants a church. We celebrate the giant moments. But often what we miss is that God prepares people long in advance for those moments through the seeming mundane things of life. I love the way Pastor Jeff Mannion puts it in his book, Dream Big and Think Small. This is the way he says it. He says that a remarkable life is built by taking a thousand unremarkable steps. A remarkable life is built by taking... And how does God prepare you and prepare me for what he's calling us to do? Sometimes I think we hope we'll just step on the big stage and that God will do something miraculous and show up and that he'll save us. And sometimes he does that. But many times, God works in our lives day by day, hour by hour, through the seeming unremarkable mundane things to prepare us for all he has for us. And we are going to take a look at that together. This morning, we're going to look at the person of Paul. Next week, we're going to look at at the person of Joseph. 
And we're going to be looking, not Joseph, Jesus' father, but Joseph, amazing Technicolor dream coat, Joseph, that Joseph we're going to be looking at. The week after that, we're going to look at the person of David. Esther will be the following week, and then we'll finish on Labor Day weekend. We're going to look at the Israelites as they walk through the wilderness. And we're going to see the work that God does to prepare his people. You know, I think in life, we often confuse finish lines and start lines. And I think we do it in this way. So often in life, we reach what we see are giant finish lines in our life. Things that that look like big moments of completion. And we don't realize, we don't realize when we cross those lines that they are really starting lines to a much greater adventure. They feel like finish lines. They feel like things that we have been working for and in many cases we have for a long time. And we cross those things and sometimes we miss that many of the big finish lines of our life are really starting lines to much greater adventures. I'll give you an example of what I mean. When Lori and I had our first child, Caitlin, our, our, our oldest daughter, one giant finish line, it felt like, in our, in our journey as being parents, would be if we could just teach this child that had been entrusted to us to walk. That was an exciting thing. When you have your first child, when you're a brand new parent, the idea that this child might begin to move and crawl and then stand up and then walk is a big deal. And that felt like a big finish line. Like if we could just convince this child to walk, we would have passed a milestone uh, and then it would be just smooth sailing from there. And so our daughter, we watched her over the months, and she began to crawl, and then she began to pull up on things, and she began to travel around, and then she took one step, and then two steps, and then she was walking all over the place, and we thought to ourselves, ah, we did it. But what we didn't realize was that was introducing us to a much greater journey, and all of a sudden, we weren't prepared for it. All that you have to do now that a toddler is moving around the house, and things have to be child-proofed, and there have to be gates, and you're watching constantly, minute after minute, where's the baby, where's the baby, where's the baby, where's the baby, because you don't want anything bad to happen. So much so, I realized that this is a giant starting line and not so much a finish line, that when my second and third children started to crawl, I would kick them over and say, no, (laughs) don't move. But isn't it like that in life? We think these are giant finish lines, like a high school graduation. When you are 18, it feels like a massive finish line. But when you look back, wasn't that just a giant starting line to a much greater adventure and journey? And college graduation the same way. Our college graduates, they graduate, and one of the biggest challenges they face is all of a sudden they go from being at the top of the pyramid to the very bottom of the pyramid in the workforce. And if you're not ready for it, that can be a really challenging thing to walk through. And it feels like, and everyone tells us that it's this giant finish line, but really it's a starting line to a much greater journey. I tell every couple that I meet for for premarital counseling, that the next few months or year of their life is going to feel like they are working towards a giant finish line. Everyone's going to tell them it's a finish line. The parents are going to feel like it's a finish line. The florist is going to tell you the wedding is a finish line. The the venue is going to tell you your wedding is the finish line. Your bank account is going to tell you, can we please reach this finish line? And everything that you do as you get prepared for a wedding ceremony, it feels like a giant finish line, doesn't it? But ask anyone who's been married for five minutes and they'll tell you. You are not crossing a finish line when you say your wedding vows. You are crossing a massive starting line to a great, challenging, but beautiful journey 
together. And you know what happens? If we confuse these things, we can find ourselves very frustrated because we are told and we think, well, I'm crossing this finish line, so now I'm done with the hard work. I graduated. We got married. We had a child. I got a job. And you feel like inside of yourself, I finally done it. And if we're not prepared, if we're not prepared for these starting lines, for our finish lines to actually be bigger starting lines, we can go frustrated with the journey. You know, I think a very similar thing happens in our walk with Jesus Christ. There are things that we uphold in the church as big finish lines that we celebrate as finish lines, but really, really, there's small finish lines and bigger starting lines. And if you and I aren't careful, by promoting these things only as finish lines and not also as starting lines, we will create a culture in which people cross finish lines expecting for all the hard work to be completed. And if they're not ready for the next part of the journey, they will go very frustrated indeed. In fact, some of you are here this morning. And you're frustrated because you thought you crossed the finish line. But really, it was just a big starting line. Some people aren't here this morning because they quit this whole thing. Because they were told if they just crossed this finish line, everything would be perfect. And they didn't realize and they weren't prepared for the starting line that awaited. So this is an important topic. And this whole topic this morning, and we're going to have to move quick, quick, quick through a lot of these verses. But this whole topic this morning is really for an insider. It's really for those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm glad that you are here because we're going to take, tear back the curtain, we're going to lift up the hood, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it really means to follow Jesus. About the time that Jesus was on this earth, there was a, a leader among the Jewish people, a great Pharisee. And the Pharisees... At that time, they were the ones that were in charge of the rules. So God gave his people law, the Jewish people law. And the Pharisees, it was their whole life to make sure that they understood the law and they made sure not only that they followed the law, but that everyone else followed the law as well. And the Pharisees, they were so serious about this that the really strict, strong Pharisees, they would create secondary and tertiary laws around God's laws so that they wouldn't even get close to breaking God's laws. For example, God said, keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and don't do any work on that day. And so the really strict Pharisees would do things like limiting the number of steps that they would take on the Sabbath just so they didn't get anywhere close to breaking what God said about work. Well, among the Pharisees, there was no greater Pharisee than a man named Saul, and he came from a town called Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was, was the Pharisee. He was the man that had all the clout. If he wrote the books, they would have been on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, if he was speaking at the Pharisee conference, he would have been the headliner of the whole deal. He was, he was the one. He was the man. And when these Christians started popping up, when these Christians started popping up, Saul did what any good zealot would do in his time and day because they didn't much put up with other religious ideas. Paul began to persecute and in many cases kill anyone that he could get his hands on who called themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. It was Saul of Tarsus. 
One day Saul, and some of you that have been around church for a while, you're familiar with this story. One day Saul, he was on a road to a town called Damascus. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, verse 3. He was on a, a road to a town called Damascus. Remember, this is the persecutor of Christians. This is the most outspoken person, hater of followers of Jesus. He's on this road, and watch what happens in verse 3. Now as Paul, as he, that's Paul, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here's Paul, this persecutor of Christians, thinks he's doing God's work, by the way thinks he's doing the right thing by stopping all these heretics from preaching about Jesus Christ. And he's killing them and persecuting them, and he's on the road, and all of a sudden there's this bright light, and Jesus speaks to him out of the light. He says, Paul, what are, or Saul, what are you doing? What are you doing to me? The light goes away. He can't see. He goes into the town. He sits there for three days. Now watch what happens. I love this part of the story. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, So disciple means Ananias. He's someone that already follows Jesus. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. If you're Ananias, how do you feel about this request? tell you how he feels. Ananias answered, Lord, what is this, a joke? Lord, I have heard about, from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. This guy kills Christians, God. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul is on the road. The bright light appears. He can't see for three days. Jesus speaks to him out of it. He's going to follow. He's going to follow now Jesus Christ. God goes and gets another follower of him, Ananias, and says, Ananias, you need to go and pray for Paul. You need to go and pray for Paul. And Ananias says, there is no way I'm going to pray for Saul. I keep saying Paul. God changes his name. I need to go and pray for, you need to go and pray for Saul. And he says, there is no way I'm going to pray for Saul. That guy kills people like me. And God says, go, because I'm doing an amazing work in his life. And Ananias goes and prays. Paul regains his sight, is baptized, and begins to follow Jesus Christ. It feels like a giant finish line, doesn't it? I mean, when we're in church, isn't that what conversion is? A conversion is just this giant finish line that that's why we're here, is to try and get people saved, to try to convince people who don't follow Jesus to follow Jesus, and that's our primary function, it feels like, in church sometimes, that that's what we do and why we are here, and certainly it feels that way with Paul. I mean, here's Paul. Paul is the persecutor of Christians. There is no one that hates Christians more than Paul. Think about a person in our day. Think about the leader, a world leader right now today. 
who is killing Christians in their country because it's happening all over the world. Or think more locally. Who's the person that you know that's the most outspoken person against Christians? Imagine if Ricky Gervais or Penn Jillette or Neil Tyson Grass walked in the back of a room and they're like, I'm with you now. We'd be like, yeah, right. And that's what's happening with Paul. Paul is going from the person who hates Christians the most to one of them. And it feels like a giant finish line. And for many of us, it feels like the finish line. People came to us and they said, you need to trust in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. And all of you need to trust in Jesus. And then we finally did it. And some of you fought it for a long time. But we finally did it. And we said, that's it. Finish line. We've done it. But what do you do then? I mean, the Christian life has to be about more than just crossing this finish line of putting trust in Jesus Christ and then waiting until we see him in heaven. So what do we do then? One thing we watch play out in Paul's life is that Paul begins to understand, even though I don't know if he understood it himself in the beginning, But he begins to understand that what he did was cross the finish line in choosing to follow Jesus Christ. And let me say to you this morning, if you do not follow Jesus Christ with your life, there is no better choice that you could make than to follow him. But be prepared. Because choosing to follow Jesus Christ is not a finish line that requires you to do nothing afterwards. It is a starting line to a much greater journey. Paul, he goes into Damascus and just does his thing. He starts going back to the synagogues where he was the man in charge. And he walks into the synagogues and he starts telling them, I believe in Jesus now and you should too. And I'm sure it was kind of raw. I'm sure he didn't have any preaching classes. He didn't have any any sort of theology class in Christianity. He knew the Jewish religion. He knew all of those things. But this was a whole new belief system to him. And he's walking into these places and he's trying to do it. And after a period of time, he says to himself, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem because that's where most of the Christians are. And he heads towards Jerusalem. And look what happens later in Acts chapter 9. This is after a little bit of time has passed by. Chapter 9, verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. And again, what do you think the disciples thought? Right? This isn't, they didn't have Twitter. They didn't watch a video of Paul's conversion. All they, they didn't even know. Who knows if word had gotten to them that this had happened to Paul. He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Watch what happens. But Barnabas, but Barnabas, see, Barnabas understood. Barnabas understood something. Barnabas understood that Paul, he had just crossed a big starting line. That he wasn't a completed package because he had decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. But that he had just started, crossed a big start line. And that someone needed to come alongside of him and begin to pour everything that they knew about Jesus Christ into Paul. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road Paul had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. And by doing this, Barnabas begins to set up this relationship with Paul where Barnabas is going to walk alongside of him and say, okay, Paul, you're brand new to this thing. You got a lot of zeal. We like the zeal. You got a lot of clout. We love that. We'll leverage the clout. But there are other places, Paul, where we need to begin pouring into you 
what you do not know about following Jesus Christ. And the first place it happens is in Jerusalem, where Barnabas comes along and says, guys, it's real. It's real. Paul's not making this up. This isn't a bait and switch. He's not saying he's a Christian and then going to kill you. This is the real deal. And there's just one other instance that I want to look at briefly this morning, and it happens in Acts chapter 11. And watch what happens. In Acts chapter 11, there is this town called Antioch. And in Antioch, revival breaks out. They're putting up tents, and people are filling them, and it's like an old Billy Graham crusade. People are are walking down and choosing to follow Jesus Christ, and the church in Jerusalem hears about what's happening in Antioch. And they say, we need to go check this out. They send Barnabas down to Antioch to check this out, and watch what happens. The report of this, that's the revival in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now watch what Barnabas does next. What would you do next? Barnabas goes to Antioch and he sees what's happening. And the first thing he does is he says, I got to get Paul. So Barnabas traveled to Tarsus and he got Saul and he said, Saul, listen, If you're going to be ready to go and minister, you need to come back to Antioch and see what God is doing. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And over and over, and it's not just Barnabas, Paul later in his letters will talk about many people, men and women in the church, who poured into him things that he did not know and were helpful to him in ministry so that he could grow. When you choose to follow Jesus Christ, it is a starting line to a much greater journey, a challenging journey, but a beautiful, joyful journey. And if you're going to progress, you need people who are pouring into you what they know about following Jesus Christ. Do you have that in your life? Where are you being poured into? And it doesn't happen in rows facing a stage the way it needs to. This is content transfer. This is inspiration for the journey. But we need people that walk with us, that don't just preach at us. We also need people that walk with us, like Barnabas walked with Saul, who when they see God doing something, come back and get us and say, you need to come and see this as well. You need to experience this with me. Do you have someone in your life who is pouring into you? So you say to me, well, is that the finish line then? So it's not that I just follow Jesus. That's a finish line, but it's also a starting line. Is finding someone who pours into me a finish line? Is that, is that it? Is that what we're supposed to do? No. It's just another starting line for another part of the journey. When Jesus was on this earth, after he spent all three years with his disciples, after he, was, after he died and was resurrected, he gathered them together and he said these words to them. He said... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Here's the interesting thing about that verse. 
That verse has a number of verbs in it, and you know this verse was originally written in Greek. The, ver- the verb that has all the emphasis, the verb that is in the imperative form, that means it's the verb that if we wrote it in English would have a giant exclamation point, or if we really wanted to do it well, we'd embolden it and put it in bright green, is the verb, make disciples. We read that verse and we think that it's probably go. That Jesus is saying something like this to his disciples. Go and make disciples. But Jesus is saying this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. And make disciples of all nations. What God is saying to the disciples is this. He's saying, listen, I spent all this time with you. I spent the last three years with you. And during that time, I poured everything that I know about what it means to follow my father, what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, what it means to do all those things. I poured all of that into you. Now, here's what you're to do with it. Don't think the journey's over because I'm leaving. You are to take everything that I have poured into you, and you are to pour it into somebody else. And Jesus says to his disciples, if you really want to do this, Don't just hoard it. Don't feel like I've poured all of this into you for your sake alone. Your job is to take everything that I've poured into you and to pour it into somebody else. That's what it looks like to make a disciple. Paul says it this way. When Paul started doing ministry, he took someone with him. He took a, man, a young man by the name Timothy with him. And you and I in our Bibles, we have two books, two books, two letters that Paul wrote to his mentee, Timothy. And one of those letters, he tells Timothy the exact same thing that Jesus told his disciples. He says, Timothy, you want to know what the entire journey looks like? It doesn't just look like you learning to follow Jesus. It doesn't just look like you finding people to pour into you. Here's what you're to do, Timothy. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. What you have heard from me, Timothy, what I have poured into you, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What I have poured into you, Timothy, now you take that and you pour it into somebody else who then can go and pour that into somebody else. And you know, it's only after Paul says that to Timothy that he's able to write these words. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. You see, for Paul, the finish line only came. Not when he chose to follow Jesus. Not when other people poured into him. But when he had been able to take what he had been given and pour it into someone else so that that person, Timothy, could go and pour it into someone else else who would pour it into someone else and pour it into someone else. And the only reason you and I are sitting here today as followers of Jesus Christ is for 2,000 years that has happened over and over and over again. And it didn't happen on a stage with bright lights and pyrotechnics and big fanfare. It happened in one-on-one meetings and coffee shops and in Bible studies and in leaders talking to young people and in youth groups and in children's ministry over and over and over again again. One more story that I'm done. 
when I was in high school and in school in general, listen, I'm not proud of this, but it's true. All right, so I'm just going to throw it out there. I loved certain parts of school. I was good at English. I was good at history, good at the arts, those sorts of things. I hated, and I feel comfortable using that word, word. I feel the exact same way today. I did not like math. It didn't matter what kind of math. It didn't matter uh, geometry, trigonometry, calculus. We did not get along at all. All right? It just is what it is. This is why I had to marry a very bright and intelligent CPA so that I can leave tips on bills and all sorts of other stuff that I just can't do on my own. And when I was in 10th grade, I had a math teacher who was my favorite math teacher I ever had for not the greatest reason, because she knew I hated math, and she didn't care. And we kind of had an agreement. As long as I showed up, it didn't bother anybody, uh, she would pass me through so I could, she would never see me again, and I would never have to see her again, and that was kind of, you know, the, it was unspoken, unspoken, but, but it was an agreement. I knew we had this agreement because, this is true, I could walk into her class, I could put my head down on my desk, I could fall asleep, and for 55 minutes, she would not wake me up. I would wake up at the bell, and I would go my way. She was happy. I was happy. It is what it is, all right? I'm not proud of it. I'm just telling you, the youth, most of them are out in the other room. Don't tell them the story, all right? <laughs> Seven years later, my sister had her as a teacher. And <laughs> she asked my sister one day, my sister called me and said, oh, you know, our math teacher, she asked me what you were up to. And I said, oh, what did you tell her? And she said, I told her that you're in seminary, which was true at the time. And I said, oh, what did she say? And my sister said to me, she said nothing because she couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) But see, here's what she missed. When I was 16, I hadn't crossed any of these finish lines or start lines. The next year would be the year that I would choose to start following Jesus Christ with my life. And I'd cross a finish line that was really a starting line to a greater journey. And then I would have a youth pastor who would begin to pour into my life and meet with me one-on-one with another student when no one was around and when the lights were off and it was just the three of us. And then I'd go to college and I would have other Christian uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who would pour into my life. And then I would head on to seminary for more of that before it was my turn to try and take what I knew, what I know, and to pour it into others. She didn't know that part of the journey, and that changes everything. We can sometimes give the message unintentionally that being a Christian is about choosing to follow Jesus. Congratulations, you've passed the finish line. And then you just kind of hang out in church for a long time until you die and then you go to heaven. And that's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. But that's not what it means at all. God is inviting you into a greater journey in which you take what has been poured into you. You allow others to pour into you and then you pour it into others. And I can tell you that that journey is far more exciting and far more engaging and far more dynamic and far more desirable than just saying you believe in something and waiting around until it's all over. And some of you are saying to me right now, listen, I don't know much. I don't know much. Not much has been poured into me. I'm not saying that you need to know everything. 
All I'm saying is that you're responsible for taking what has been poured into you and pouring it into someone else. And so someone in the church might be struggling and you might be able to go to them and to say, listen, I know this, that God loves you and that God is with you. And you'll pour what you know into them. And they'll say, that's it? And you'll say, that's it? That's all I know. That's all I know. But that's what you're responsible for because someone else is going to come along and pour a little bit more in. Someone else in the church is going to come along and pour a little bit more in. You are responsible to be making sure that there are people who are pouring into you and that you are pouring into others. That's why we do Junior Bible Quiz. So that we can take what we know and pour it into our children. That's the whole mission statement of our church, that we gather together to learn more about God and grow in our love for others. We gather together so that we can be poured into, so then we can go and live lives driven by faith. It's the whole reason we exist. If we want to see God do the big things in the big moments, We have to be willing to be a part of this process. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to announce our community groups here that will be meeting this fall. That's an amazing place to go and to have other people who are followers of Jesus pour into your life. We're also going to be looking for volunteers in the next couple of weeks for this next year to be a part of children's ministry and the the youth team and all these other areas of our church. Those are amazing places to pour out what you know into other people. This fall, in about a month, Ting, who's been leading us in worship this morning, is starting a full-time internship program at the church because he thinks that maybe God has called him into ministry. This is us, as a church, taking what we know about following Jesus Christ and pouring it into him to prepare him for what God is calling him to do. I'm going to invite our worship team forward as we close this morning. And as we close, I want you to think about this truth. That the journey God has called you to is not just belief, although that's a big part of it, but that with that belief, you would engage in an even greater journey of being poured into, of learning what it means to follow Jesus Christ, of watching others and walking with others, and then turning around and pouring that into somebody else. Who is pouring into you today? And if you don't have it, where can you go and find it? And who are you pouring into? Where are you taking what you know about God, however much or however little, and pouring it into someone else? Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MT Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again next week.